Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Out front next, hours away from the first votes in New Hampshire, can Nikki Haley stop Trump's march to the nomination? This is Republicans are now lining up behind the former president, Republicans who apparently forgot that they used to hate him. Plus breaking news, Israel reportedly proposing a two-month ceasefire in exchange for the remaining hostages and the reporter who broke this story is out front. And then Biden scoring a major victory in his border battle with Texas, the Democratic mayor of Denver. He calls the city ground zero for the migrant crisis will be out front. Why he thinks he has the solution everyone can agree on, let's go out front. And good evening. I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, the first primary of 2024 at midnight. The first voters of New Hampshire get to go in and cast their votes. And these are live pictures from where that will happen in Dixville Notch. Anybody watching electoral politics every four years, you hear about Dixville Notch. It is the first town to vote in the Republican primary this time in what is now a two-person race for the GOP nomination. Trump is about to hold a rally in New Hampshire. He will be joined there by three of his former rivals turned supporters, Senator Tim Scott, Governor Doug Burgum, and Vivek Ramaswamy. While Nikki Haley is wrapping up her last event for the day, she now has that two-person race that she said she wanted, making this her last big chance to show voters she has the support to take Trump down. And for Republicans who loathe Trump, it does all come down to Haley. She is their only shot to stop Trump's march to the nomination. And anything but a very close finish could mean the end of her campaign, which raises a very big question. Do those who have been trying to oust Trump rally behind him? I mean, for years, we've seen anti-Trump Republicans coalesce around the former president when it finally comes down to it. And this time, just take his recent opponents like Ron DeSantis, who made these two comments one week apart. You can be the strongest, most dynamic, uh, successful Republican and conservative in America. But if you don't kiss that ring, then he'll try to trash you. You know what? You deserve a nominee that's going to put you first, not himself first. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear. Okay, well, that's Ron DeSantis. But now I give you the former candidate, uh, Doug Burgum, Governor Doug Burgum. Here he is in July of last year. Would you ever do business with Donald Trump? Uh, I don't think so. Why? I would, I just think that it's important that you're uh, judged by the company you keep. Well, tonight you'll get to see the company he keeps because in moments he will be taking that stage and he will stand next to Trump, who he is backing. And then there's Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina. Today she endorsed Trump, even after he said this about her. In the first congressional district, you have another horrendous rhino known as... Crazy Nancy Mace. She's a terrible person, and she has no idea what she's doing. 
Well, I guess he thinks she has an idea what she's doing tonight, right? Endorsing him. And then there's New York Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, rising star in the GOP, who is reportedly in the running to be Trump's running mate. She is perhaps Trump's fiercest defender now on Capitol Hill, but that was not always the case. She once slammed Trump for his lies and his attacks on women. I think he has been insulting to women. I think in the presidential field, there are some candidates who, over the long run, and and they've already started this process, are somewhat disqualifying themselves with uh, untruthful statements. Well, that was then, and this is now. I support President Trump. He is an important voice in our Republican Party. Well, there you have it. That's how it usually goes. And Kristen Holmes tonight begins our coverage out front at Trump's rally in Laconia, New Hampshire, where he is going to be surrounded by some of those individuals. So, Kristen, how important is it to Trump tonight to have three of his former opponents who have said uh, things like we just heard them say, rally around him and support him, be on stage with him tonight? Well, Aaron, it's really astonishing listening to those clips that you just played, because I remember back in 2022, after Trump announced after the midterms, and it certainly was not, the the tide was certainly not going that way. But clearly, we have entered into a new era, and it is critical to Donald Trump to have these three opponents turn supporters up on stage with him, because that is his entire message. The message is, the party is coalescing around Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, you should do the same drop out and let's move forward. Now, it's not just those three that we're here with. We are looking around, I'm seeing all of his multiple, excuse me, they're doing a prayer right now, so I just want you to know that's why I'm talking a little bit lower. But I'm seeing some of his top surrogates, Carrie Lake, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Byron Donald, all are here in the room. They are all here to support the former president. It's all part of the same message, which is that Donald Trump should be the nominee. That's what they want here. Now, in terms of margins, that's something we've talked a lot about. They're not really setting any expectations for here in New Hampshire. They just want a big win, and that's what they're focused on. Again, as you noted, unless it's a close, close finish for Nikki Haley, it could be the end of her campaign. That's obviously what they're looking for. All right, Kristen, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for, uh, I know it was hard for her to speak there. All right, our panel's with me. Um, well, I guess, Sean, you got to say, you know, Doug Burgum, um, you know, that's a tough one. At least Carrie Lake and Byron Donalds have only ever been on one side of this issue. <laughs> yeah. um, so I guess you could, you could start with that. But nonetheless, here we are. They always take the knee. That's what Donald Trump said about these folks. who He, he can trash somebody. You heard that there. Nancy Mace, 1st District, South Carolina. Terrible person, mm-hmm. he said to a crowd full of folks. And yet you consistently see the spinelessness, these people just supine crawling back to him. Uh, They take the knee, no matter what he says, because they're afraid. It's a combination of cowardice and careerism, and it is corroding their soul. One excellent use of the word supine. supine. Thank you very much. Okay, Uh, Governor Sanford, Haley tonight, I mean, this is is crucial, right? This is, as we say, a, a do or die moment. You've known her. Good times and bad. You know her character for better and for worse. Um, Obviously, you know, you were governor and then uh, she was lieutenant and she took over. Where do you think her head is right now? I mean, she knows the moment. In fairness, she followed me. She was not my lieutenant governor, but she did follow me. Where's it go next? Um, I mean, who knows? I mean, I I, I, I think, A, it's do or die. Uh, I think that if you look at what Ron DeSantis did, I think if you look at what Nikki may do, 
at the end of the day, it's about saving your own political capital. And I think Ron DeSantis did that to possibly fight another day. And if it doesn't go well in New Hampshire, I suspect you'll see that white flag go up from Nikki's end as well. You do. You think that after all these things she said in recent days. I know she, she would... said she's going through. But at the end of the day, if you get trounced in your home state, it does not bode well for a future Senate run or for another presidential run. So, Margaret, how well does she have to do tomorrow to stay in? Look, I, I had an opportunity to visit with Governor Sununu about this last week on my PBS program, and he said that, you know, a strong second in a two-person race, which to me is, a, is, is not a win. But, you know, I, it seems to me as though... Right, you're either going to come in one or two. Yeah. You're, if, if, you're, if you're two in a two-person race, that's a loss to me. But they're all talking margins, mm -hmm. and that's how they're measuring it. If Trump has 12 to 15 points ahead, it's hard yeah. to see how she wins. If she's within four to six, I think that is a strong second-place finish, which gives her a degree of momentum and, and, frankly, credibility to go back to donors and say, help me push this through, at least through South Carolina, and see what we can do in South Carolina, which is admittedly an incredibly difficult race for her. Right. And that's when we talk about these endorsements. Um, she, uh, just to go through the endorsements, obviously, in the state, right? Uh, the governor, um, who I know there's no love lost between the two yeah. of them, nonetheless, <laughs> the governor, yeah. Joe Wilson, William Simmons, Russell Fry, all at a, an event, Nancy Mace, Tim yeah. Scott. Uh, it's pretty universal. Yep. And it has the feeling of momentum, for particularly for voters who... They're not paying attention to delegate counts or those sorts of things that we're looking at. They're looking at a stage and thinking, wow, he's, all these people are with him. I, maybe I should just, you know, maybe it's inevitable, right? It's, mm -hmm. And that's a place where if you are a Trump, you do want to push uh, the inevitability uh, narrative, right? Because right. that's how you just keep rolling all along. And, and look, I, I agree with Margaret. I think if it's five points or more, hard to make an argument to donors to keep yourself alive for a month. Remember, it's a month of campaigning that you've got to do in South Carolina. Yeah. And the state is very, you would know better than I, Governor, but the state is very different than it was when she was governor. And I think we're seeing that in some of these polls showing Trump so far ahead. So, so Governor, she did talk about it. Um, you know, obviously she's saying, you know, pending how she does, well, she's not saying pending, right, but right. we all know pending how she does tomorrow. She's making it that South Carolina, because it's her state, she was governor there, she can win here. How she put it. We're going to go on into South Carolina. We're going to be strong. They talk about, oh, New Hampshire is good for her because of independence. I won the state twice. She did win it twice. How much has it changed? Uh, it, it, I mean, on the coast, it's changed radically, given the influx of folks from the Northeast and the Upper Midwest. Uh, same in, 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 at the other bookend of the state, uh, up in Greenville, Spartanburg, our industrial hub, if you want to call it that. But the middle part of the state is largely the same. It has not changed a lot. I mean, there are a lot of folks that have been there for 100 years. And, and uh, I mean, you've got a lot of family history. I'll just leave it at that. And, so, and so, so what I would say is it's changed a bit, but it's on the margin. Um, and I, 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 I just think that you look at the numbers and there's a reason that all these, I mean, the entire uh, congressional delegation minus one who happened to be her deskmate when she was in the House uh -huh. and all constitutional officers have gone that direction because they're reading the tea leaves in their districts across the state, and it's decidedly Trump. They're, they're terrified of losing a primary. Right. That's yeah. particularly true yeah. of Lindsey yeah. Graham. But let me just make a case for why I, I think Nikki Haley staying in is important. And let's just say, by the way, you have extensive family history. 
In South Carolina, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if it's the wink, wink, nod. No, no, no. Expensive means less than one generation. Yeah. I mean, that's not very expensive in South Carolina. One generation. Grants but my folks were in South Carolina in the 90s. Look, I think it's important that she stays in if she can credibly because less than 1% of Americans have voted in terms of the populations of these right. respective states. Yeah. Nominating Donald Trump, someone who's tried to overturn our democracy, indicted on 91 counts, is so unprecedented. I understand why the politicians are all weak-kneed and falling into line. He's functionally the incumbent. But but it, that represents such a radical departure. And having an alternative in place, I think, is important for the country yes. and the Republican Party to really assess what they're about to do to themselves and potentially... Can, can I mention something that we don't talk much about with Nikki Haley? The other consideration, voters are looking at her and saying, do I see that woman as commander in chief? And we mm. haven't talked a lot about the unique challenges that women face, particularly when it comes to executive leadership, which means, do I see her as the commander in chief? Could I see her going toe to toe with Putin? It's part of why she talks about her experience at the UN so often. Yep. Do I see her as someone who's going to care about my family and fix the economy. And that's part of why she talks about being an accountant, right? And in terms of issue areas where women traditionally um, have weaknesses and men have perceived, I want to say perceived strengths, yep. mm. we don't talk about that much. But that's another consideration here that when for women, it is a different consideration when voters are looking at that candidate and saying, do I believe she's tough enough well, you job. use the word tough, and of course, that's what Trump has questioned, yeah. you know, that she's not tough, and he's called her a bird brain. In an eminently sexist attack, yep. because, yep. you know, if, if it, you know, sexism doesn't stop him, he's happy to do it. Look, this is a, a question before New Hampshire voters who have delivered surprises repeatedly in the past, and they're happy about doing that. Um, the consequence of a President Haley versus a President Trump when it comes to Ukraine, when it comes to China, when it comes to immigration, when it comes to the economy, unaffiliated voters in New Hampshire have an opportunity, along with Republican voters in New Hampshire, to make a choice so that America has a choice for a President Haley versus a President Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the question right now, not South Carolina. And, and I hope they will give us another choice. So, <laughs> I mean, I agree yeah. with all those things, uh, but they're idealistic in nature. Uh, uh, they're hope for us. They're, they're, they're the dream of where we want to end up as a party. I'm just reading the tea leaves in South Carolina as they are right now. And I would say at this point, sadly, from my perspective, they're not particularly compelling from a Haley perspective. I mean, 7% right turnout in when you look at Iowa, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not among the most populous states. I mean, it is an, 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 yes. such a tiny slice of America that is making a decision for the, everybody else. So let's not. But that's so. the nature of modern polling. I mean, you look at well, the, the sample size with most polls and they give you a read. They not may not be perfect. It's not a full representation, and it, but it gives you a read. And it's the process the Republican Party has chosen to make right. their selection for their nominee, yeah, which is yeah. frankly chosen in order to create a... a the, the 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 strength for Donald Trump, the nominee. He I want to ask, on, there is a primary uh, tomorrow mm -hmm. on the Democratic side. Um, Biden's not on it. It's complicated. Dean Phillips is trying to get in on it. Um, there was a robocall, an AI voice resembling Biden, um, you know, t advising people not to vote. Yeah. Pretty terrifying, by the way, on the macro of what this means. Absolutely. Uh, but they were h happy to use this AI call. Yeah, I, I think take a big step back and try to separate the urgent from the important. And this is one of those important stories that might get missed today. Yeah. AI, aiding voter suppression, impersonating the president of the United States. That's a harbinger of things to come in a very mm. dark and dystopian way. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. don't lose sight of that. We'll find out who paid for it, what they were trying to do. 
Um, but but th- those three things are so resonant with history and the future hanging yeah. over it. Pay attention. Well, I mean, it's terrifying. We now know that, I mean, you can, it says it sounds like him. You can have calls now Mm -hmm. where you wouldn't be able to recognize your own mother or your own child on the other line, right? That's how good this can be. Absolutely. And we have enough time that we can find out and we're able to report. Imagine if it was election night, the night before the election in November, and that's happening. And we don't have the time to tell people, hey, this is false. Hey, yes, you got to go vote tomorrow, right? I mean, yeah. that's the, the big concern. And look, we're seeing some of these AI guys from Silicon Valley getting in the game here. They actually need to meet their responsibility to our democracy to help ensure that their technology is yeah. not used to subvert democracy. All right, all thank you very much. And I want to go straight to Brendan McQuaid because he's the president and publisher of the influential New Hampshire Union Leader, which is the largest newspaper in the state. His endorsement uh, is always highly sought by candidates in the primaries, and the conservative-leaning paper has just endorsed Nikki Haley. So, Brendan, I appreciate your time. And look, your endorsement doesn't pull any punches uh, in the paper. Uh, you and your team write, the dinosaurs from the last two administrations have indeed had their shot, and Nikki Haley is the fireball from the heavens to wipe them out. We want a better option than we have had for the past eight years, and Nikki Haley is that option. And to the conversation we just had here with our panel, you talk about her time as governor and U.N. ambassador and why you believe that shows she can lead on the world stage. The reality is, of course, poll after poll does show Donald Trump with a significant lead in New Hampshire. How do you think Nikki Haley can prove the polls wrong? Well, by winning, number one. (laughs) If she can do that, she can certainly prove the polls wrong. Um, But... I think the important point, and your guests were talking about it, is that the country deserves a choice. You know, New Hampshire is first, but we're not last. So Nikki Haley staying in this race really shows that there is a chance for people to vote for someone who they actually support and not someone who they think they're supposed to support, because that's what they've been told for the past year and a half. So in 2020, Brennan, your paper supported Joe Biden over Donald Trump. I know this was a a tough decision, but you did that in the general election. It was your first Democratic endorsement for the paper in a century, 100 full years. Um, So have you thought, I mean, you you said uh, in that uh, uh, op-ed at the time, you said President Trump is not always 100 percent wrong, but he is 100 percent wrong for America. President Trump has proven himself to be the antithesis of thoughtful and pragmatic. He has failed to earn a second term. Would you endorse Biden again if it's Biden-Trump, given that logic last time? Uh, We would be very hopeful for a third-party candidate in that uh, maneuver. I think if you you, uh, reread our past editorial supporting Joe Biden, it was that Joe Biden was supposed to be a uh, president who would serve a term, who would help bring the country back together, who would be more of a uniter than a divider to crib from uh, George Bush, and he has done none of those things. And he's now not in a great position to lead our country for four more years, so he's not the answer either. The country needs another choice, and Nikki Haley is that choice. All right. Well, Brendan, I appreciate your time, and thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thanks for having me. All right. And our special coverage of the New Hampshire primary will begin here at 4 o'clock Eastern tomorrow. And next, the breaking news, Israel reportedly proposing something huge, a two-month pause in fighting. They're offering that in exchange for the release of all prisoners being held by Hamas, more than 100, we understand, still being held. The reporter who just got that scoop is out front next. Plus, Biden winning a major battle at the border. 
Tonight, the Supreme Court giving agents the okay to destroy what the Texas governor put in place to stop the influx of migrants. So who actually is the winner here? And terrifying video we have just coming in of a rogue wave at a U.S. military base. The force of the water is so powerful. You can see what happens there. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Breaking news, something very significant that could signal the beginning of the end of the Israel-Hamas war. Axios is reporting tonight that Israel is proposing a two-month pause in fighting in exchange for the release of all remaining hostages. Israel believes there are still 132 being held by Hamas in Gaza. This is the longest ceasefire Israel has offered Hamas since the start of the war. I mean, in two months, a, a, a transformational period of time, to state the obvious. Barack Ravid broke this story. He is our political and global affairs analyst as well. So, Barack, what more can you tell us uh, with your reporting here about a potential two-month pause in this war? So first, uh, this proposal is uh, out there already for something like 10 days. And by out there, I mean that the mediators, Qatar and Egypt, know about it, and they transferred it to Hamas. And it was a proposal that was discussed within the Israeli war cabinet with, uh, after you know, quite strong disagreements inside the war cabinet on, on how far Israel needs to go. And the decision was to go pretty far. And two months pause, that's the biggest amount of days that Israel was ready to give Hamas since the war started. Uh, and two months, I mean, transformational, as I say, to say the least. Now, you say that the mediators have been working on this for 10 days. Obviously, you're breaking this news now. It's the first that the world's heard about it. Uh, but that time frame does raise the crucial question. Where are the negotiations? Is Hamas biting on this? Um, so, again, um, I, I'll, I'll tell you what I hear from Israeli officials, and then, then maybe I'll tell you my own opinion. Um, so what I hear from Israeli officials is that they are much more, let's say, uh, optimistic than they were 10 days ago or even a week ago or even three days ago, because they get the feeling that every day that passes, there is more willingness by Hamas to agree to start discussing this idea in more detail and basically drop their maximalist position of, you know, end the war, release every Palestinian prisoner in Israeli prisons and give us immunity for the rest of our lives. And so Israeli officials say that they believe that in the next 24 to 48 hours, they'll be much smarter on whether Hamas is ready to engage on this or not. 
Uh, all right. The context for this, of course, Barack, is also that Israel has come under uh, withering, blistering condemnation from many around the world for uh, the state of the war. And when you talk about a two-month pause, um, that completely changes the game. It takes away moment. It takes away everything. It takes away the people who are engaged in the wars, energy, and it's all of it. Is this really possibly the beginning of the end? I totally agree with you. And, you know, Netanyahu refused to, uh, to Hamas's main request or demand that Israel agrees to end the war. But when he proposes two months uh, pause, he knows, and everybody else who's been uh, working on this know very well, that after two months of pause, even if the fighting resumes this way or another, it's going to look much different, okay? There'll be much fewer Israeli soldiers inside Gaza, uh, the operations will look differently. And, and this Israeli officials are totally aware that it might be very hard, close to impossible, to resume the war, to resume military operations in Gaza after two months of pause. Barack, thank you very much. Uh, and obviously, significant mm -hmm. breaking news headline there from Barack. And we've got some additional breaking news on this as well. CNN just learning that as part of the ceasefire talks that Barack is reporting on, Israel's spy chief proposed that Hamas senior leaders could be allowed to leave Gaza. Now, Orrin Lieberman is live at the Pentagon. Some people, Orrin, may hear that and go, wow, allowing them to leave Gaza, uh, I, I suppose, sort of begs the question, and go where and when? What more are you learning? Well, the where and the when really isn't part of the discussion. That's not what Israel is focused on. The key here, according to excellent reporting from my colleague Alex Marquard, is that Hamas's military leaders, who Israel has failed to find at this point after more than 100 days of war, would leave Gaza. For Israel, that would allow them to claim some sort of victory. And it's worth noting that this information comes from two officials who've been briefed on the international and ongoing negotiations. So for Israel, it means that Israel could claim some sort of victory. Hamas's military leaders who were critical in planning the October 7th terror attack would be out of Gaza and it would weaken Hamas's uh, stranglehold, frankly, on the Gaza Strip. But crucially, it also comes as Israel has failed to achieve its military objectives of trying to completely destroy Hamas. According to Israel owns, Israel's own estimate, Hamas contains or, or retains rather something like 70% of its fighting force and we see its continued ability to launch rockets at Israel. This proposal, this idea of Hamas's senior leaders leaving Gaza was brought up at least twice by Israel's Mossad chief David Barnea, once last month in Warsaw, once again in Doha this month. But uh, the country officials who've been handling the negotiations and have been trying to mediate between all the parties here effectively cut it off and said it's a non-starter. There isn't a situation in which there would be agreement where Hamas's senior military leaders would be willing to leave Gaza as part of a ceasefire. They have control of the Gaza Strip, and it doesn't seem like they're ready to relinquish it. In terms of who Israel would go after here, this would be names like Yahya Sinwar, Mohammed Daif, the senior military leaders there who are a critical part of all this and retain a tremendous amount of control in Gaza and are frankly able to manage still an ongoing war. Which is pretty incredible when you think about 25 miles by six and the decimation uh, that we all see daily on our screens. Thank you so much, Oren Lieberman, and of course to Alex Marquard uh, and Barack Ravid for all of that significant reporting on the, uh, this situation tonight. Next, the Supreme Court siding with Biden over Texas when it comes to how the border is secured or not secured, as we hear exclusively from Vice President Kamala Harris. 
she was once tasked to fix the border crisis on what she thinks should be done. Plus, new video just coming in of a massive explosion inside Russia from a Ukrainian drone that managed to fly thousands of miles into Putin's territory undetected. Tonight, a major victory for President Biden in his fight with Texas Governor Greg Abbott over the southern border. The Supreme Court ruling that Border Patrol agents can cut through razor wire installed by the Texas governor along the Rio Grande. The Biden administration arguing agents needed to be able to access the area to both rescue and apprehend migrants. This comes as our Laura Coates spoke exclusively with Vice President Kamala Harris today about the crisis at the border, where there were a quarter million illegal border crossings last month alone. On both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, about an unsustainable border, what they're calling a crisis. Why can't this be accomplished during this administration? Well, so there is no question that our immigration system is broken. And so much so that we, as the first bill that we offered after our inauguration, was to fix the immigration system, which included what we must do to create a pathway for citizenship mm -hmm. and to put the resources that are needed into the border. But sadly, people on the other side of the aisle have been playing politics with this issue. The solutions are at hand. And, you know, gone are the days, sadly, where a President Bush or John McCain understood that we should have a bipartisan approach to fixing this problem, which is a long-standing problem. But what are those solutions? The solutions include putting resources at the border to do what we can to process people effectively and putting in place laws that actually allow for a meaningful, meaningful pathway to citizenship. All right, out front now, the Democratic mayor of Denver, Mike Johnston, who is dealing with an influx of thousands of migrants bust into his city by Governor Abbott. And Mayor Johnson, I appreciate your time. I mean, your city is the single largest recipient of migrants per capita in the United States of America. So you've had uh, more than 37,000 of them, hundreds a day. And that has added, I think this really gives people watching the perspective, 5% to your city's population over the past year. So a 5% increase in population right. because of um, migrants, uh, illegal migrants coming over the border. So can we try to get an understanding of what this really means for people who live in your city, taxpayers, Mayor Johnson, how much is this costing your city? Yeah, uh, thanks, Herman. The good news is uh, we know how to manage this problem. We found ways to be successful. Of those 37,000 people who've arrived, we've managed to get most of them into uh, jobs and into housing and into services. Um, but the challenge is to do that right with resources. And so we have spent more than $40 million this year. We are on path to spend about $180 million in 2024, which would be more than 10% of our city's budget. And we think that is unsustainable for our city to take on. And so we know there is a solution here. The, the clear path is uh, we need federal resources to help folks arrive and get integrated into the system. And then we need ability for them to access work authorization. If folks can get access to work, we can quickly get them into jobs. They can support themselves, pay for their own housing, and yeah. not have to require taxpayer supports. But those are the two big things we need right now to make this effort successful, are workforce authorization and federal resources. All right. So just to... Uh, 
I mean, look, this is an, a, a really important conversation. I mean, 10% of your city's budget, by the way, I hope everyone heard that. I mean, that's very serious. It's significant. So I understand, Mayor, while you, why you're saying work permits, right? Because of exactly what you said. You want them to be able to pay their own way uh, so your other taxpayers don't have to do it. So it makes complete sense uh, that you want to do that. Um, the reality is, of course, that when you do that, people who are here illegally are less likely to leave right? They're less likely to go through the process. And we know that even of asylum seekers, uh, the White House themselves would say two-thirds of them uh, will, would not qualify, even under current rules for asylum. Uh, so so what, do you, what do you say to that, to the fact that migrants could see being getting these jobs as actually an incentive to those who are coming behind them illegally of, hey, head for Denver? I mean, this is one of the reasons why we supported the federal supplemental proposal the president put out, and we hope will be included in this bipartisan legislation that looks like it will be introduced in the Senate. Is that included resources at the border to actually be able to adjudicate these asylum cases faster? What happens right now, Aaron, is someone arrives in Denver and they've filed for asylum and their court date, I'll look at their court date, it is for April 23 of the year 2029. It is a six-year wait for an asylum claim. Yep. If you could actually adjudicate those claims in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, we would know who has a valid asylum claim they get work authorization and stay. And folks that don't have a valid asylum claim, I think it's actually more just to let them know that early mm-hmm. and help them look for other options than have them waiting in country for four, five, six years before they find out they can't actually stay. So there's one thing, obviously, as as, as the mayor of Denver, that, that you're not equipped to do because it's not your job in any way, shape, or form, which is to determine are there national security threats among the people who are being bust into your city. Uh, that would be uh, outside the realm of what you do. Um, and I wanted to ask you about this in the context of the fact that there were, what, a quarter million illegal border crossings in December alone. And I understand only, what, almost 40,000 uh, over these past months have come to Denver. So they're not all going to Denver. But nonetheless, these are real numbers, 10 percent of your budget. The former director of national intelligence under President Obama, James Clapper, uh, is worried about it. I asked him specifically, do you buy that this is a national security issue? Here's what he said, Mayor. I've gotten very concerned about it. There are Chinese, Russians, and others. So we've traditionally thought about it as you know, people coming from Central America, South and Central America. Well, it's much broader than that. So it, th- this is a serious national security concern. Mayor Johnston, does that concern you? Do you share that worry? I, I mean, the great majority of folks that we see in Denver are uh, asylum seekers from Venezuela. It's the woman who uh, was a police officer who was asked to tear gas people in her home country and refused to do it. And they came to kill her in the middle of the night. And she put two of her kids on her back and walked 3000 miles to get here. And so most of the human interest stories we hear are individual people who are school principals and engineers and commercial driver's license uh, certified individuals who are looking for jobs and want to help. I do know that there are Uh, Lots of folks that are coming from other countries into Central America to try to enter through the southern border. And so we're aware that can be a risk. All the more reason why we want to be able to have more resources at the border to be able to actually process those folks that are viably seeking asylum from those folks who aren't. Right now, we don't have the capacity to do that. All right. Well, Mayor Johnston, I really appreciate your time and having this conversation with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. And everyone, I hope that you will stay up tonight to watch Laura's interview with Vice President Harris in its entirety. It is tonight with Laura Coates, live at 11. And next, the Fulton County DA who's investigating Trump now at the center of her lead prosecutor's divorce proceedings as questions grow over their lavish trips allegedly funded by taxpayer dollars. Plus new video that we just got in of a massive fire near St. Petersburg, Russia, 
The Ukrainian drone flying thousands of miles undetected, successfully striking a major Russian oil facility. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. New tonight, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis on the verge of facing another investigation, a Republican Georgia state senator calling to establish a new committee focused on investigating Willis. She and Nathan Wade, who is the lead prosecutor in her case against Trump at her selection, facing allegations of misusing taxpayer funds while having an affair. Wade is accused of billing Willis and the county for hundreds of thousands of dollars of work on the case, money that was then allegedly used to pay for their lavish vacations together. This is the latest in a series of developments that threaten to derail the case against Trump as Willis's credibility is on the line. Paula Reed is out front. Embattled Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis will not have to testify Tuesday in the divorce of her special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, amid accusations the two engaged in a romantic relationship. We're seeking her deposition in her individual capacity as the alleged paramour of my client's husband. The judge planning to make more information public, but saying Wade should testify before Willis is forced to. He would have first-hand knowledge of whether he's engaged in an extramarital affair. Willis appointed Wade in 2021 to oversee the sprawling election interference case against Trump and his allies, despite Wade's sparse criminal law experience. He had been a prosecutor briefly, but mostly handled misdemeanors and never such a high-profile case. The defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. In 2020, prior to Wade's appointment, Willis discussed appropriate workplace relationships as she campaigned for office. I certainly will not be choosing people to date that work under me. Let me just say that. Now, one of Trump's co-defendants, Mike Roman, is alleging in court papers that Wade had an improper romantic relationship with Willis and used the money he billed the district attorney's office to take her on lavish vacations. DA Lewis does not determine what he spends his money on no matter where it comes from. Willis and Wade have not directly addressed the allegations, but she has suggested they're being unfairly targeted. Isn't it them who's playing the race card? Roman's lawyer also introduced evidence that Wade earned more than $650,000 for his work on the case, more than other prosecutors in the office, and... Several years ago, he charged the Fulton County DA's office $250 per hour for 24 hours in the same day. Credit card receipts revealed in Wade's divorce show he purchased plane tickets to Miami and then San Francisco for him and Willis while he was working for her. Now, a Fulton County commissioner is investigating whether Willis misused county funds or accepted valuable gifts and personal benefits from Wade. 
But these accusations don't make the underlying RICO case go away. If Willis is disqualified, a council of prosecutors will decide what to do with that case. It will likely go to another county. And Aaron, this is such a political gift for Trump. He has tried so hard to paint every case against him as the product of a corrupt system. And here you have what was once their most feared case because it's a state case outside of pardon power with some really serious allegations. Yeah, I mean, it is incredible, uh, the things, unexpected uh, things that have now occurred. All right, Paula, thank you so much. And next, I'm going to speak to a reporter who has spent more time with Ukraine's President Zelensky and his inner circle than anyone else and has some new details to share with you tonight on Zelensky's thinking. Plus, video capturing the terrifying moment that a rogue wave slams into an American military base, sweeping people away. Tonight, we've got new video into out front. This is a massive fire at a Russian oil terminal. Ukraine says it launched a long-range drone that traveled nearly 1,000 miles undetected and then successfully struck the facility near St. Petersburg. And they've got more new video that actually shows a Russian tank in eastern Ukraine erupting into a massive fireball, this after a Ukrainian strike as the fight on the front lines continues. Coming down, as Kyiv says, it will not cede territory to end the war. No sign of a negotiation. And tonight we're learning more about President Zelensky's wartime strategy from a new book whose author has had more access than any other reporter. And Simon Schuster joins me now, uh, the author of The Showman. And I hope everyone uh, will, will get this, your, your new book, uh, the product of so much reporting and time with him. Um, so, you know, you've got this video, Ukrainian attacks on Russian territory. They send a drone in a thousand miles. Uh, they successfully uh, caused these explosions in St. Petersburg. Um, you have had unprecedented access to Zelensky as he's navigated this, made these decisions. Um, and you've seen the defense strategy become much more brazen in terms of, remember when it first happened, right? Was it something near Belgorod and everyone thought, oh no, what will the, the response be from Russia? Now it's constant in Russian territory. Uh, you've got some insight into his thinking. What can you tell us? Yeah, I think the president and his team have been seeing the decline in support coming from the United States, from the West, and, and they have been hedging, uh, preparing a strategy uh, of, first of all, ramping up their domestic weapons production. Mm -hmm. You know, these drones that we're seeing, these, these are, for the most part, homemade. They're, they're made in Ukraine. Um, they've ramped up their production of missiles, uh, and and uh, these these long range attack drones, um, and these are the things responsible for for these very dramatic attacks that we're seeing. Um, and you know they point to the fact that uh, you know if if anyone in the West thinks that they can kind of come in and turn off the tap and force Zelensky and the Ukrainians to negotiate or kind of end end the war in 24 hours, as Donald Trump has suggested, um, you know that's naive. The Ukrainians are preparing weaponry to continue the fight as long as they feel it's necessary. All right, and so you also delve into an apparent rift that has been, we've sort of, sort of I'm sorry, started to see in the public realm. President Zelensky uh, and Valery Zeluzhny, who of course is the military chief. So uh, there was an interview, was it in The Economist? Or I don't mm. remember where it was, but yeah. Zeluzhny talked about the concept of it, there being a stalemate. Mm. Now some have said he was misinterpreted, but nonetheless, after that time, there, there, there's been a noticeable sidelining of Zeluzhny uh, by Zelensky. At least it has appeared that way in the public eye. Um, and you lay out in here some true simmering tension between these two who are really, I mean, you can't have daylight between those two figures. It's crucial to understanding the way Ukraine has has prosecuted this war and, and the future of the war, that relationship. And I think that that's, that's something that I really tried to focus on in the book. It's one of the most important relationships that I, I cover. Yep. And I sort of describe the evolution 
that began early in the invasion with an enormous amount of admiration and respect on the part of President Zelensky uh, uh, to Zeluzhny. It was mutual respect. Um, But over time, what you see is uh, the president forming his own military priorities, getting more confident as a military commander. And sometimes his priorities, his ideas of what needed to happen on the battlefield didn't align with the general. Um, So they began to have disagreements behind the scenes. Uh, And and one of the first times we really saw it break out in the open was over this discussion. Is there a stalemate at the front or not? And and, and, um, I spoke to President Zelensky. Actually, it was interesting because it was his first outdoor television interview. So we were down in Odessa. And I remember when he sat down, he kind of looked up. And he talked about the birds, that he could hear birds and, and see a blue sky. And I don't know, for me, it was just somewhat profound, just a realization of what his life is like, you know, driving around in a bulletproof car when he's even outside. Um, and so he talked a little bit about how he spends some of his moments alone, whether he exercises or not. And here's a part of the exchange that we have. What music do you like? Oh, I like ACDC. And Ukrainian music. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I like Ukrainian music a lot of because uh, Ukrainian, that's native language. I like Eric Clapton, hmm. a lot of, lot of Guns N' Roses. Maybe it's, it's too old music for... I understand. <laughs> we're, we're the same. We're, we're the same. <laughs> so you've spent so much time with him. You've seen that. It was just a moment of, of him being human in a way that any of us could re, you know, respond to him. Um, you talk at one point in the book about how those around him say he looked like a walking corpse. You show the picture in here. You were just showing me of him right before the war and him now. What else did you see in him? Yeah, I mean, the, the exhaustion was there. And, and I think Zelensky felt it. He saw it in, in many of his team members in the early days of the invasion. I mean, they, they were working around the clock. Um, and they were living down in the bunker underneath the presidential compound. So he realized that they needed some ways to to unwind. So the book describes also how their their lifestyle you know evolves. This this clip about the music he likes reminds me of some of the movies they they watch down there. Um, and you know there was there was lively debate about what movies to watch. And President Zelensky, even though he grew up watching these kind of Soviet comedies, he refused to watch them. They they watched kind of new releases from Hollywood much more than the Soviet ones. Did you give any other examples of what ones he really liked? Or well, the, one of the movies they watched was. Uh, 13 Hours, uh, which is an interesting one because it describes the the siege of the compound American embassy in Libya in 2012, Benghazi, Libya, which was a situation somewhat similar to what they were experiencing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Simon. I hope everyone uh, will read this book. And of course, uh, based on your fantastic uh, and indefatigable reporting. Thank you so much. And next, wild footage just coming in of a powerful rogue wave crashing into an American base. People were swept away. We'll tell you what happened. And finally tonight, terrifying video just coming in of a rogue wave. This wave smashed into a U.S. Army base in the Marshall Islands. The man who posted the video says no one was seriously injured. The images, though, are absolutely terrifying. Thank you for joining us. AC360 begins now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.